listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So if you will find in your Bibles or on your devices, I want you to find 1 Peter chapter 1, and we are going to look at verses 17 through 25. And so if you're new with us here this morning, we are a Bible church, and often what we do is we pick a book of the Bible, and we will walk through this book, and we actually will finally get through, get finished with chapter 1 today. It's been several weeks, but here's our idea, here's our, our, um, our focus, and here's what we hope that gets accomplished, is that we want to say what the text is saying. We don't want to be the authorities. We want to go to God's Word. We simply want to read it. We want to elaborate on it. And then we trust that the Spirit will take that and teach us. And so we are going to be walking through these a few verses at the end of chapter 1. And today is all about one word, I think, from Peter. It's about motivation. And motivation is simply the reason or reasons that a person acts or behaves in any particular way. And our lives are constantly being motivated. As parents, we motivate our children to eat. And man, you come up with all kinds of noises to take food on that spoon to get your child to open their mouth. We have done planes and trains and zip lines to helicopters to dump trucks, anything to get that child to open up. Or we might promise them if you eat your vegetables, then maybe you get a cookie after you eat. But motivation is all around us. You go to school and kids are motivated to learn by maybe getting their name on a wall or they earn a certificate. And we're trying to motivate them to behave or to act in a certain way. Teenagers are motivated. They're motivated to perform their best by maybe earning awards. Good attendance is even rewarded. You can go to school and if you have perfect attendance, there's like a half a day during the semester that you kind of get free time. And we're trying to motivate to a certain behavior or acting in a certain way. You're an adult. You never actually get to outgrow motivation. On the radio, you can often hear a company say, advertising great pay, flexible hours, and a retirement account. I mean, they're trying to motivate you to go to their website, to fill out the form, and to join their company. You can go to any social media. It doesn't matter what it is, and you can find motivation about this product or that product or join this group or that group, anything from relationships to money to getting into better shape, but motivation is all around us. So we think about what motivates us to do well in school or even to stay married, to get out of bed in the morning. And some days, hey, it seems like it's pretty easy. There's a lot that gets us going, that keeps us motivated, that keeps us doing the things that we know we should do. Other days, man, not so easy. There are difficult days. But here's our question this morning. If our lives are full of motivation... Well, what motivates, what motivates us to follow Christ, especially when the path is not easy? I mean, what motivates you to follow Christ when it is not easy? Well, today we're going to look at some possible answers to exactly that question. We are going to once again look at 1 Peter, and Peter all's overarching 
purpose of this book, and we need to make sure we always kind of keep this in front of us, we find it in the very last chapter of verse 12 where Peter says, This is why I am writing to you, church. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting or encouraging and declaring or testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Or to say it according to the New Living Translation, I like how they phrase it. It says, the grace of God is with you no matter what happens. And this is what Peter wants to make sure that everyone believes and knows and is standing in that God's grace is with you no matter what. So this morning, I think we will see four motivations that Peter is going to draw upon to encourage his readers to stand firm in the grace no matter what happens. And he is, what he's done, the first 12 verses, remember, he built this foundation. This is what we must believe. We must believe that God the Father gave us life. God the Son gave up His life for us. And the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, empowers our lives. And He holds the guarantee of our eternal lives. Holds it securely. And Peter says, we must believe that first. Then he calls the exiles, and that's the, the phrase, the, the term, the theme of our series. People living not in their homeland, he told them two things. Set your hope and be holy. Of all the commands, he said, set your hope and be holy. So what Peter is going to do, he wants to try to now motivate these exiles to live out that reality. He wants them to live as if they are saved and redeemed and holy. And Peter wants them to live according to the reality that they are. And years ago, I saw this portrayed in a movie that was, I thought, wow, that right there, that is scriptural. It's in the movie Princess Diaries. It's this cheesy little movie and there's this really awkward teenager and she has a grandmother come to town, and she meets her for tea, and she sits down, and she is so clunky and so awkward. And the, the grandmother's there. She is so proper. She sits up straight. She holds her cup right. She makes no noise. She barely talks above a whisper. She's got a, this accent in uh, Mia Thermopolis or something like that. She is just clanking the cup. And the grandmother finally looks at her and says, Mia, what you don't understand is that I... And royalty by marriage. But you are royalty by blood. And then through the course of the, the movie, she is this princess by blood. But she begins to then transform actually into that princess. And what her the, the moment for her was when she realizes the impact she can have on the children in the village. And, uh, and so you watch this transformation that she becomes who she really is. And I think that's what Peter is trying to say, is that we need to be becoming who we are. And he says this, that our motivation should be the eternal, sacrificial love of God. That should motivate us to live as who we are. That should motivate us to set our hope. That should motivate us to be holy. So let's pick up now in verse 17. First verse says this, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear 
throughout the time of your exile. So motivation number one is this. He's going to motivate us by the Father or because of the Father's eternal judgment. Man, I want to go, Peter, Peter, Peter. You want to motivate people by talking about judgment? I mean, he needs to sit through some classes to realize, man, man, that's not how you're supposed to get people excited and to motivate them to do something is to talk about judging. But Peter, he doesn't shy away from it all. Yes, we are comfortable talking about God's love and his mercy and blessings, but we can often get uncomfortable talking about God judging. But Peter doesn't even hesitate to refer to the greatest holiness and the justice of God. So how can this be good or helpful motivation? Well, the first thing is this. Notice that he says, and if you call on him as father. Peter once again goes to there's always a relationship before there's ever a command. There's always grace before we're supposed to do something. And he says, I want you to think about the father that you share as Christians. We have a Father that is loving. He, he lovingly creates us. He lovingly saves us. And He will lovingly judge us. That one day, believers will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will give an account for what we have done with our lives before God. And He will reward us accordingly. But doesn't the Bible say, But doesn't the Bible say that we are under no condemnation? And I would say absolutely. Yes, as Christians, we are no longer under the fear of God's wrath. God's wrath is no longer coming for me. The punishment for my my sins has been dealt with. Therefore, I am under no condemnation. But Peter is reminding his readers that we will give an account with what we do with our new lives. And he says, think about the time that is coming. The second motivation he uses in this, uh, the Father's eternal plan, is you see it says the Father judges impartially. Meaning God is going to, I'm going to have to stand before God and say, okay God, this is what I've done with what you have given me. The good news is, is that I'm not going to be compared to anyone else. Meaning, I'm not going to have to worry about being compared to great people like Mother Teresa. Missionaries like Hudson Taylor and Jim Elliott or Lottie Moon or Jonathan Edwards or even Billy Graham because they were uniquely gifted in a certain time and a certain place to accomplish certain things for God. But I won't be compared to them. But I also don't get to go, well, hey, at least I'm better than that person. No, God judges impartially. And God has given each and every Christian as a gift to the church. And we will be judged according to how we love his church and how we serve his church. And the good news is is that we don't have to worry about being compared, but we are called to be a blessing in different ways. God the Father doesn't have favorites, is what Peter says. We will each be held accountable individually. Meaning he has gifted you with the Holy Spirit. He has given you things that you love, passions and talents and spiritual gifts. And we are meant to use those for those around us. Those right in our home, in our families, in our neighbors, in our community. We are meant to serve and to live sacrificial lives. But notice what Peter then says in verse 17. So he says, focus on your relationship as the Father. That there is this eternal judgment coming, but it's a good thing. But he says that he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with 
fear. And I want to go, Peter, Peter, again, judgment, and now fear. Fear is never a good motivator. But what Peter is saying is that he is showing us about how we should respond in this motivation. That we do not have to fear God's wrath any longer. If you believe and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus paid that debt. Therefore, I am no longer have to fear that wrath or that judgment. But Peter is talking about a different type of fear. Peter is talking about a fear that shows respect and honor for the power of God. This week, uh, somebody was asking me, oh, I think it was uh, Karen Hudson. She said, oh, have you been to Niagara Falls? And I said, yeah, when I was 10 years old, my dad went and he was preaching a revival. So he put three of us in this little car and we drove for two and a half days and we actually survived. And, and we went to Niagara Falls and I said, what, what, she said, what was it about Niagara Falls? And I said, for me, it was standing at the corner where the fall comes over. And there is such power and there is such noise and there is such energy that it, um, it just draws you in. And at any moment, you know, that could end me. If I go over, that is it. But there is such a respect and an awe that you have for the power of this water that is rushing over the edge. And Peter is talking about a fear that shows respect and honor for the power of God. And so for me, studying over the last few weeks, Martin Luther has been really helpful for me to understand, well, how do I distinguish between fears? Because he notes two styles, two types. One is called the, uh, I think you would say, say it, the filial fear. The other one is the servial fear. Servial fear is the kind of fear that a prisoner has for a torturer. Servial fear is the kind of fear that a criminal has when he sees the executioner coming. Servial fear is the dread without faith that it actually, when it happens, you run away from God. But the filial fear is a fear of a family fear. It's a fear that a son should have for his father. It is the fear that a child should have for its parents that we do not have to worry about offending or disappointing. If that said in parents. But it's a fear. It's a dread. But in which faith is added. That should cause us to run to God. And not from him. Because you see the gospel. The gospel has made it possible for us to approach God with our fear. Under the gospel you know what you have. You have complete client attorney privilege. Everything you say. You can be honest and you can be open before God because He knows all. You have total forgiveness. You have an assurance of reconciliation. You have a promise that we will be found innocent of all crimes against Him through Jesus Christ. Now I think often of the poem by uh, C.T. Studd that you have probably heard because I think this is what Peter is saying under Motivation 1. He says, only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And Peter says, keep your eyes on that focus. There is a time coming. Now look at verse 18 and 19 to the second motivation. He says, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with, with the precious blood of Christ 
that the, like the lamb without blemish or spot. So the first thing Peter shows us, he's talking about motivation number two. He says it's the son's eternal sacrifice. So we should be motivated to, to set our hope to be holy. First of all, because of God the Father's eternal plan of judgment. I'm going to have to give account. But then he says, because of the son's eternal sacrifice. And I love that Peter says, you can know. Knowing that you were ransomed. That we can know that we can believe that we have been ransomed. Then the second thing you can know about this ransom is it wasn't done with something that's going to lose value. Something that's going to depreciate. Something that will maybe or may not hold. No, he says that your ransom is through the precious blood of Christ. So what does he mean? What does he have in mind behind this idea of ransom? Well... You're probably familiar with it, and actually I have another movie reference for you. I don't know why I never use movies. I've got already two. That Mel Gibson movie, Ransom, and what it is is that you know the scenarios. You've seen them where somebody takes someone, and they demand money, and then there's this tension that's created. Will the family pay? And if they do, will the the kidnappers hold up their uh, end of the bargain? Will the families be reunited? And we see this played out over and over and over again. And I think what happens is our thoughts when we read about ransom in Scripture that we think that we're being held ransom by Satan or the devil and that Jesus went and he ransomed us from Satan. And I don't think that's at all what Scripture says. Because if Satan holds us ransom and if, if Jesus pays Satan for us, that means Satan gets exactly what he wanted and he wins. So what does he mean by what are we ransomed or who are we ransomed from and what are we ransomed from? And Peter gives us, he says, first of all, we are ransomed in verse 18 from the feudal ways. Peter says that we are ransomed from a meaningless and empty life. That we can begin from the moment we breathe breath, that is what we are stuck in. It is meaningless. It has no purpose. But Christ redeems us, or He ransoms us from our formal way of life. Therefore, Peter says, we must leave that life. Peter's motivation is that since you have been set free from the old life at the cost of Jesus' own blood, do not go back to that meaningless way of life. We must leave the old lives behind. You know, I think we see it in several scenarios. You know, it's like the young professional that can't quite seem to leave the college days behind. You know, and you just can't pull the all-nighters like you once did and where you were studying or maybe doing other things. And Because, man, now you've got to get up and you've got to get to work and you've got to do certain things. I've even seen it in college students when they can't quite seem to leave The high school ways and the maturity doesn't seem to come about. Or even married people, they can't quite seem to leave the single life behind. And all of a sudden you're in this relationship that you can't just do what you want when you want to do it. Because you are living as one with another person. And I think we see this leaving the former to something new. We see it all throughout our lives. But let me give you what I think is scriptural about then who are we ransomed from? Because this verb is a Greco-Roman reference. And oftentimes, and I believe Peter would have had this in mind. Because looking at the context of the people. That what would happen, a slave would receive his freedom after depositing money in the temple. 
A slave would go and earn. They would come to the temple and they would deposit into the treasury of the temple of, of the god or the goddess that in that particular city they worshipped. When there was enough money, then the temple treasurer would then give that money to the owner. From that point on, that slave was free from that former owner. But it was looked upon that even though they were free from the eyes of the former owner, they were now enslaved to the god or the goddess of that temple. A slave was considered redeemed by a deity. So Peter's readers would have had this in their, their context. Who had had this, they would have seen this played out. But in context here we see that Jesus is the one that purchases our lives. He is the one that purchases our freedom. Jesus is the one who had given his life for us. But who Jesus paid? Jesus paid the ransom to God the Father. Jesus paid him to satisfy the wrath of God that was coming for sinners. And Jesus stood in our way and he paid that ransom for us. Jesus purchased our lives so it is through Jesus that the Father now sees us. Because He is the one that ransoms. So church, listen. Do you know what determines how your heavenly Father feels about you? It's how He feels about His Son, not you. What determines how your heavenly Father feels about you is what Jesus has done for you. Jesus pleased His Father for you. That's the good news of the gospel. And what happens is that we pervert it and we make it about us. Instead of Jesus being the center of our Father's affections for us, we have made it about us. And then what happens is that we strip Jesus of the glory when we make how God feels and how He deals with us based on our performance and our behavior. And we strip Him of the glory and the beauty. So what determines how our Heavenly Father feels about you is how he feels about his son. And we must learn to live in that reality. Because what happens is when we become the sinner, and God's affections for us are based on our performance and his blessing on us is based on what we do, man, all of a sudden we become prideful. Or we jump into legalism. Or, you know what happens is you live under such guilt and shame all the time that you can never measure up. And the truth is, the gospel takes all of those. The gospel takes away our pride. It allows us not to be able to stand in legalism. It covers all guilt and all shame. Now look at the next two verses in the third motivation. He says, For he, Jesus, was forsaken before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, through who him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So the third motivation he's talked about, the God the Father's eternal plan, the Son's eternal sacrifice, and now the Father's eternal plan. Meaning, God knew that our total emptiness, that we are absolutely helpless to work or to, to buy ourselves out of sin's slave market. We cannot do it. So before the foundations of the world... God had a plan ready, and he was ready to implement it. And this plan meant that his eternal divine son would set aside his heavenly comforts and privileges, take on full humanity, and voluntarily take on himself the cross on your behalf so that our faith and hope are resting in God. So Peter says, listen, exiles, 
There is no other solid basis for hope in hurtful times other than the fact that Christ himself took on himself the cross and he rose victorious, ready to lead us to life. So this means that Christ's purpose, I mean, think about this. Christ came and his purpose was always to die, to be raised, and to be given glory. That was always his purpose. Meaning that every action Jesus took, every one of everything Jesus ever did, every conversation he had, every choice he made in every situation and in every location was done for your sake. Because he was living the life that you and I could not live. He was living the life that through his righteousness we could be declared righteous before God. And we must think about how amazing is that, that that is always God's plan. And that plan can be trusted, Peter says. So Peter says that we can be motivated to set our hope and be holy. First of all, because God's eternal judgment, we will stand account. He says this son's eternal sacrifice should grip our hearts and motivate us. And then he said, guess what? God the Father has a plan that has always been, and that plan can be trusted. Now look at the last Uh, Four verses. He gives us the last motivation. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly with a from a pure heart, since you have been born again not with perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And for all flesh is like a grass. And all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the fade and the flower falls. But the word of God remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. I mean, I love last week our kids up in the Bethel Kids area. They, they were learning a song that was teaching them that God's word remains forever. So here's what Peter's doing. He's kind of focusing on three things. First of all, he says he's trying to motivate them to live these lives. And he says, obeying God's word produces a purified life. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience. But you must be thinking, but haven't you just been saying, Mark, that this is not based on what I do? It's it's on what Jesus Christ did? Absolutely. And if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and believed in Him, God sees you perfectly holy and righteous because that's how He sees His Son. But there's this problem. We're stuck in these sinful bodies. We have this battle that rages on. And Paul even says that I know what I should do, but I do this and the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I I want to do, and he's just so confused because there's this battle raging on inside of him. But what Peter is saying that the more we obey, the more we obey, these corrupt bodies begin looking more like who they really are. And it's that transformation that begins to happen. And he says, you are being transformed. And our obedience is an assurance that we belong to him. And our obedience is slowly, hopefully, knocking off those rough edges that begin to make us and to transform us into who we really are. And he says it's through God's word. The second thing, look at verse 23. He says that you have been born again, not with a, with a perishable seed, 
but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So why is God's word compared to a seed? Well, I think it's because even though a seed is small, the inside that seed is everything that it needs for life and growth. You take a small little acorn, and inside that acorn is everything to produce a big, beautiful oak tree. It's all in there. It's all there. So I think Peter is saying that inside God's Word is everything we need for life of obedience to God the Father. It's all there. That We must just stop neglecting it. But then notice the last thing that Peter does. Peter quotes Isaiah 46 through 8 where he says, All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of God remains. You know, we are like the grass that fades. And we're like the flower that falls. That, but he's contrasting this with God's ability to live and to love perfectly for eternity. He says God's word is eternal. Your flesh is not. We are here today, but we are gone tomorrow. But his word remains forever. So I think what Peter is trying to do is to bring us to the end of ourselves where we finally can see God rightly. Where we see Him as the source of all things. We see Him as the source of all goodness. We see Him as the source of all blessing through His Son to us. That His Word is meant for us. That we are to be in it daily. That is to nourish our souls and that everything that we need for a life of obedience is there. So Peter is trying to motivate us by saying, listen, judgment, you will give an account. The sacrifice of Jesus where he purchased everything for us. That God the Father has an eternal plan that we can fully trust. And he says if that isn't enough, think about God's word of the promise that you are being transformed. So he's trying to motivate his readers and eventually the church to set your hope fully on God. Because you think about all the things that we trust in throughout the week. Trust in this to bring us happiness or trust in this to make us feel better. Trust in this to make us look good in other people's eyes. And we will wear ourselves out trying to do that. But he is saying rest in who you are. Now grow in that. Someone who was motivated to abandon all for the promise of heaven. And I think that's what Peter's saying. I want to leave you with him. You may or you may not have heard of him. It's actually in one of my all-time favorite book series. It's in a book, and if you are not at all familiar with C.S. Lewis, I encourage you to find something of his to read. But he wrote, actually, a children's series called The Chronicles of Narnia. One of my absolutely favorite book series. I read it as a child. I read it as an adult. And it is just remarkable, the symbolism of, of Scripture to it. But in, the, in the, the fifth book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, they're on the ship with Prince Caspian, and they're sailing out for the shores of Aslan. They're setting out for the, the horizon of heaven, and they go through so many trials and turmoils and battles, and they're, they're, it's just they're getting to the end of all hope. Well, on this ship is a little mouse named Reepicheep. He's the little one with the little sword. and He is there, and uh, Reepicheep, he is, his entire life is selling the seas 
in pursuit of heaven's shore. That's all he's concerned. That is, that is his one goal. And I want to read just a short section at the end of the book because this is what it says. The current drifted them steadily to the east. None of them slept nor ate. All that night and all the next day they glided eastward. And when the third day dawned, with a brightness you and I could never, could not even bear, not even with dark glasses on, they saw, they saw a wonder ahead. What was there eastward beyond the sun was a range of mountains. And the mountains must have really been outside this world. These were warm and green and full of forests and waterfalls, however high you could look. And suddenly, there came a breeze from the east, tossing the top of the wave into the foamy shapes and ruffling the smooth water all around them. It brought them both a smell and a sound, a musical sound. No one in that boat doubted that they were seeing Aslan's country. At that moment, with a crunch, the boat ran aground. The water was too shallow now, even for the boat. This, this said Reepicheep, is where I go alone. They did not even stop to try, did not even try to stop him. For everything now felt as if it had been faded or had happened before. They helped him into his little boat. He then took off his sword and said, I shall never need it no more, he said. And he flung it away across the lilied sea. Then hastily he got into his boat. He took his paddle and the current caught it and away he went. Very black against the lilies. The boat went more and more quickly and beautifully. It rushed up the wave's side. For one split second, they saw its shape and reap a cheap. On the very top. Then. Then it vanished. And since that moment. No one can truly claim. They've ever seen Reepicheep the mouse. But my belief. Is that he came safe to Aslan's country. And is alive there this day. So I ask us. Do we long. For Reepicheep's reward. I mean Peter is saying. Listen do not get discouraged. During these difficult Days, He says, you have been born again to a living hope. Therefore, set your hope on the grace that was brought to you on that day. And so I ask us all, is the bow of your ship always pointed to the port of heaven where those warm mountains await your eternal exploration? And so today, we have got a great morning. Today, we are going to celebrate with some whose eyes their lives, and even their eternity are pointed toward heaven. Because we are going to get to see a picture of the gospel painted for us. We gathered Tuesday night and we talked about what the gospel is. And we talked about baptism and what it does and what it doesn't do. And I want to say this. I, I want to say, parents, thank you for raising your children to know who God is and to follow Christ. Because we're going to get to see that today in some children. But there's going to be some parents here today that your children have actually grown. And I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to you for raising your children that through life's storms, that God can be trusted. 
Because we've got some adults that are coming today. We've got some children. We've even got a dad that's going to baptize a child. And so what I want to do, I want us to pray. The band's going to come up and they're going to kind of lead us in one song so that we can get ready. It won't take us very long. And then what happens when we are done with the baptism, every one of those that come up, man, we want you to let them know that we celebrate not them, but what God has done through and for them. And we want to celebrate that today. So let me pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the blessing and the truth of your word that you are always with us and we can set our hope and our trust on you and that we can live holy lives. Not because of ourselves, but because of who you are and what you have done. So Father, this morning, help us to celebrate in a way that we are celebrating changed lives. We are celebrating lives that have their eyes, their their eternity, their eyes, their lives, and everything pointed towards heaven's shore. So it's in your Son's name that we pray and that we celebrate today and are thankful for. And the power of your Spirit that indwells us as believers. It's in them that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.